Previously in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has uh, delivered his manifesto for his way of life, the thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches as one with authority, and then he travels down the mountainside, and he starts to shake things up right away. He's healing the sick. He's calling the unlikeliest of candidates to follow him in his way of life. He's teaching people about the new reality of God's inbreaking kingdom into their world in the here and now. He's casting out demons. He's pushing Satan's agenda back. He's doing battle with evil. So it's only a matter of time before the controversy that Jesus was generating would catch up to him. Last week, we read about the way that these new characters in Matthew's gospel called the Pharisees enter the picture to question Jesus because they don't understand why he would party with a group of people called tax collectors who are, to them, unclean, traitors, criminals. And Jesus rebuts brilliantly, as he always does, he uses scripture and he uses logic. Now, the disciples of John the Baptist enter the scene. And now, if you don't remember, or if you're not familiar, John the Baptist is another charismatic figure who, in the story, has generated his own audience. He has his own following. He's got his own sort of controversy. And John has made it really clear that his supreme and sole purpose, really, is to quote, unquote, unquote, pave the way for Jesus. But John's disciples, the people who are following John the Baptist around, are confused about something. Jesus is always going around eating food with people, and from what they can tell, at least, Jesus doesn't fast. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may be thinking, well, that's weird because didn't Jesus fast for like 40 whole days and nights back in Matthew 4 when he was out in the desert being tempted, all that? And in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't Jesus specifically teach a certain type of fasting? And yes, both are true, but the question that's going to get raised by John's disciples isn't if Jesus has ever fasted, and it's not if he approves of fasting or has thoughts about fasting. They want to know why Jesus doesn't fast regularly. Now, we did a whole series and practice on fasting, so if you missed out, you can go back and if you want to know more, catch up on the podcast. For now, here's the refresh. Back in the first century, fasting had become something of an official biweekly institution for many, if not most, observant Jews. And obviously, for the religious leaders who exemplified like rigorous concern for the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they fasted twice a week. Now, here are John's disciples. They're watching Jesus closely because that's what John told them to do, and suddenly it occurs to them, hey, we fast twice a week without fail. We thought that's what everyone did. How come this guy never stops eating? Now, let's read Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. You guys there? You ready? Great, thanks. John 9, 14. John's disciples came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples do not fast, period. And Jesus, again, in just a second, he's going to respond with incredible tact and intelligence. That's his thing. And his defense is not unlike the defense that he employed in last week's text against the Pharisees who questioned his eating with tax collectors. Because at the heart of Jesus' kind of central kingdom ethic is this idea, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. One scholar says it like this, fasting does not do much for the neighbor. And Jesus' ethic is conspicuously neighbor-centered, not an ethic of spiritual, physical, or mental cultivation. And then he quotes from Hosea 6, I want mercy, not sacrifice, is another way of saying, I want neighborliness, not individualism. But before we unpack the way that Jesus answers specifically, I want to take just a brief caveat to acknowledge something that I think is important here, and it's the fact that Jesus 
knowingly generates controversy, and then he wields that controversy as a teaching tool. Now, often in my experience, I don't know about you guys, but the fact that we follow like a peace-loving, nonviolent rabbi often becomes misconstrued as kind of a guideline for avoiding anything and everything that could possibly generate contention or debate, especially amongst Jesus followers. And then I get it. On the, you know, on the other hand, most of us probably know those endlessly divisive types of people who seem most unhappy when folks are just getting along, so they always want to correct and to nitpick and to critique. But here again, Jesus consistently demonstrates a desire for unity and peace, absolutely, but He simultaneously upholds a willingness to disrupt those things for the sake of the truth. And you'd think that to alleviate this tension, he'd sit down with John's disciples. After all, he loves John, he's into, he doesn't have anything bad to say about John the Baptist or anything. So they come to him with a genuine question. You'd think that he'd sit them down, clear the air and say, no, 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 here, let me explain it to you. This is exactly what's going on so we can all get along. But instead he answers with a cryptic metaphor. So uh, chapter nine goes on in verse 15, Jesus answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. What Jesus is saying is, is it right to go to a party for someone else only to focus on yourself in a manner that's often somber and intense? No, that would be rude. It would be selfish. That's not what you do at a party. In Jesus' context, a Jewish wedding was like this really animated, ongoing celebration with food and drink and close friends and family, and it went on for days. So even for an observant Jew to fast at a wedding celebration would be insulting. It would be callously egocentric. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm alive. I'm here. God's kingdom is near. People are entering it. It's not time to be somber and inward, at least not yet. And notice he isn't suddenly down on the idea of fasting, the thing that he was just talking about and doing himself recently. He insists that his followers will fast. The time is coming, he says, but it's just not right then and there. And this is also the first foreshadow in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will at some point, and the quote is, be taken from the disciples. It's subtle, but imagine the kind of ominous air it would generate, especially if you're one of Jesus' disciples and you're sitting there when he says that. Wait, what does that mean? What's he talking about? And then Jesus goes on in verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, disclaimer, the parables of the old garment and the old wineskins are among the most difficult and divisively interpreted sayings of Jesus. Um, here's where most scholars tend to agree. Jesus and His teaching, His way of life, these things are the new things in His parable. Things like inward focus, fasting, traditional modes of religious observance, those are the old things. Jesus is saying that there is often difficulty connecting the old and the new. And don't misunderstand Jesus. He, Jesus. he isn't saying that the new does away with the old, per se. He's saying that there can be a tension there and that resolving that tension may not look the same for everyone. He is, in a way, predicting a time of transition in the days, of head, in the days ahead in which certain things will have to give way to new things. 
So what was once for Jewish people in temples and synagogues will eventually be for all people in homes and around tables. Once was, what once was a law, like a legal code of living, is being fulfilled in Jesus. When the legal code has been a way of life for an entire people, generation after generation, you can see how this kind of unexpected change would be a tough pill to swallow. Transition, in other words, can be a messy thing. A lot of writing around the early church documents precisely that, the awkward bumbling to figure out how to be faithfully Jewish and to practice this new way of life in Jesus. So, while it's all well and good for John's disciples to fast, that's great. Jesus' disciples aren't fasting yet, and that's okay. Embracing a new way of life can be complicated, and it may take some time depending on the season of life and the people. So, for example, if I'm hanging out with like a brand new disciple of Jesus, I don't personally bombard them with the most radical spiritual disciplines and ask them to, you know, get started by studying the book of Leviticus tomorrow because that would tear the garment, that would burst the wineskin, so to speak. It doesn't mean that they'll never do those things. Hopefully they will, but they may not take them on, at least not just yet. And the story continues with a sudden eruption of action in verse 18. While Jesus was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, "'My daughter has just died.'" But come, put your hand on her, and she will live. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, whoa, good grief, talk about faith. I mean, earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself was just blown away when one man believed that Jesus could heal someone from a distance. And Jesus is like, this is incredible, you believe that much? This leader is straight up convinced that Jesus can raise the dead. How's that for distance? which is incredible given that Jesus hasn't been going around bringing dead people back to life. So what will Jesus say? Will he be like, oh man, buddy, that's a really tall order and you don't know how the natural order works or all that? Look at verse 19. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples, which I think is incredible. It's like, your daughter is dead? All right, let's go. Then he just freaking stands up and he rolls out with the rest of them. This is Jesus at his most awesome. I love the way scholar Dale Bruner describes this passage. This miracle teaches that Jesus' ability to help is limitless. There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even death must now learn this. And the story gets even better. Look at verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Now, this story is extraordinary for a number of reasons. Already, Jesus is on his way to do something incredible, but don't miss the fact that it's to heal a little girl, and particularly of being dead. In Jesus' context, children were not re regarded with the kind of like affectionate reverence that we, we afford them today, and little girls were often valued even less. In fact, in the pagan world, female newborns were most likely to be exposed, meaning they'd be abandoned outside in the elements to either die or to be picked up by a passerby. And Jesus is on his way to do battle with death itself on behalf of a child, and not just a child, but a little girl. And then on his way, he's approached from behind by a hemorrhaging woman. Now that she would approach Jesus at all is extraordinary. And some scholars note that it may very, will, may very, will, very well be because she had heard that he was traveling to heal a little girl. And so she thought, man, he even heals women. 
And she does, what she does is attempt to touch Jesus' robes secretly. She kind of sneaks up behind him. Now remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He, of all people, would know passages like this one from the Torah well enough. Are you ready for this? I'm going to do it fast. When a woman has a regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during a period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whether it is the bed or anything else she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has a discharge, just as in the days of her period. Whew! I love Leviticus. So, here, a woman with chronic bleeding, most likely a menstrual disorder of some kind, she takes desperate measures. And think about it, it, it it'd be easy to see an act like this one as selfish. After all, according to the law, something that this woman presumably knew well, she knew Jesus knew well, she would ritually defile Jesus just by touching him. She would make him impure before God and unfit to enter the temple, and she wants to do it secretly. But we, the readers, know that this woman's desperate act is compelled not by selfishness, but by faith. She is utterly convinced that even proximity to Jesus, just touching his clothes, will make her well. And verse 20 more literally reads, she touched the tassel at the corner of his robe. And this is pretty interesting. Here we learn that Jesus, like other Jewish rabbis, wore something called a talid, or it's like a prayer shawl. And attached to each corner of the talid were something called tzitzit. Uh, you can see the little dangling tassels there on the ends of the robe. This is what the woman touches specifically. Here's an ancient depiction of the interaction itself. And you can see that she's reaching for the tassel. Infused in uh, the talid or the tzitzit, the little tassels at the end of the robe, of a Jewish rabbi were actually sacred symbolism. Look at this from the Hebrew scriptures. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of Yahweh that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. So this woman, she risks a lot. She hopes against hope. She believes that simply by touching the tassels at the ends of Jesus' robe, that this amazing character of Jesus, that will be enough to heal her somehow. And it does. It absolutely works. She was right. And Jesus turns around to see her, this Jewish rabbi touched by a woman with a menstrual disorder. And if you're hearing the story for the first time, if you're there, you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to be ticked. Is he going to condemn her? At the very least, he's going to correct her audacity. And instead, he doesn't. He calls her daughter. Jesus touches a leper with a skin disease. He heals a Gentile soldier's servant from a distance. He calls tax collectors to come and follow him and be his apprentices. He's constantly exemplifying his radical invitation to love others with wild abandon. And he will shatter cultural barriers. He will cross lines of decency and even ritual purity in order to extend God's love to those who would receive it. Which begs the question for you and I, what boundaries exist in our lives that Jesus would shatter to love others? Who are the impure in your context? Someone of a different 
background or nationality or ethnicity or race, someone of a different political background or preference, someone who's just uncool or someone who's annoying or awkward. And notice there's two really beautiful things inferred by this text about the way that Jesus honors this woman. First, when he finally turns around and addresses her, he doesn't mention her sickness out loud at all because he doesn't want to humiliate her to the crowd. He simply states that she is well. And secondly, what does Jesus say specifically makes this woman well? Her faith, right. Jesus attributes the healing not to his own awesomeness, but to the woman's faith. This tender concern and unabashed celebration of someone that Jesus' peers would have cast aside. Again, this from Bruner. The hemorrhaging woman's timidity in approaching Jesus directly may have stemmed from her culture's prejudice toward her sex and distaste for her sickness. In Jesus' society at that time, another scholar concludes, women ranked little ahead of children and slaves. Her inferior status prevents her from approaching Jesus with confidence that he will treat her as a human being of equal dignity. Do we appreciate the number of liberations Jesus' ministry unleashed? We are still trying to catch up with Jesus' advanced positions. And Jesus' invitation for this woman when he says, take courage, is more than just like a, hey, friendly, don't be scared, chin up. It actually can be translated, why don't you go and continue to live your whole life with the incredible faith that you have right now? And the story goes on. Look down at verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, we're back to that now, he saw the noisy crowd, the people playing pipes, it's full of mourners and people weeping and wailing. He said, go away, this girl's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Now, if you're reading this and thinking, what the heck does Jesus mean? The girl's not literally not actually dead. Is she in a coma? A coma? Um, is, does he mean to say something like death isn't really death? Uh, there's actually some debate here, but whatever the case, I think one writer sums it up really well when he puts it like this. If Jesus says that the little girl sleeps, it's not because he believes she's still living, nor that death is just asleep for him. He means that God by Jesus' ministry, is going to show that death is not that absolutely irreparable thing of which men are so frightened. And the people there respond with unbelief. They laugh at him, so Jesus makes them leave. Look, look down at verse 25. After the crowd had been put outside, <laughs> and this could be because Jesus doesn't want this miracle to be a public spectacle, maybe it's that, or it could be, honestly, because he doesn't want unbelief to contaminate the work he's about to do. Uh, John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, would sometimes uh, ask those who would acknowledge uh, unbelief to just leave the room in a time of prayer for healing or deliverance because he didn't want it to corrupt a time of prayer. Verse 25 goes on, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. <laughs> News of this spread through all that region. It figures, yeah. Jesus, he just brings this dead girl back to life. How awesome is this? Jesus has just given a woman her life back by restoring her health and restoring her to her community because of the type of sickness that she suffered, from which she suffered. And then it's almost as if Matthew is saying, you think that woman got her life back? Wait till you read this next story. Now, as a small aside, it's important to note that this girl has been resuscitated, not resurrected. And here's the big difference. The girl was dead, and then she was brought back to life. Absolutely. But... Ultimately, she died again. 
Not so with resurrection. This is what makes Jesus' victory over death and his work on the cross truly unique in all the cosmos. Of course, that doesn't mean that Matthew doesn't think that this incident is incredible. He does. And like resurrection, this is a gesture of Jesus' power over death. Scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. What Jesus was doing was the beginning of his whole work of rescuing the world, saving the world from everything that polluted, defaced, and destroyed it. And those who would benefit would be those who would believe. Earlier, Matthew kind of intends to dazzle the reader with Jesus' incredible ability to heal sickness and drive out demons, specifically with a word. But in this story, what does Jesus say to raise the little girl? Anyone? It's right there in front of you. You want to double check it? Look back. What does Jesus say? Aaron, I'm just staring at you, man. You're my faithful. The girl's not dead. Go to sleep. What does he say after that to raise her? He doesn't say anything. There it is. Yeah, he, he takes her by the hand, which was, again, ritually impure to touch a dead body in Jesus' context, and he beats death back without saying a dang thing. Now, Power up your memory for a moment and think back to the story of the physical healing prior to this one. There's a paralyzed man. He's brought before Jesus. And before Jesus heals him physically, he says what? Right, your sins are forgiven. Jesus versus sin. Who wins? Jesus. Now, in this next story of healing, Jesus dismantles death itself. Jesus versus death. Who wins? Jesus. Jesus has reached down into humanity's two most fundamental crises, sin and death, only to demonstrate that he has power to conquer both with his extraordinary love. And that's why we're still here, frankly, because God has seen the human predicament and he has done something about it in Jesus. He's still doing it. That's why we train in the practices. That's why we go on on and on about practicing the way of Jesus together. That's why we have a church, because we want to do the things that Jesus did. Right on? Right on. But we've got more work to do tonight. Let's keep at it. You guys still all right? All right, there we go. Feeling sharp. Let's keep reading. Matthew 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, son of David was a moniker that described Israel's promised Messiah. He was said to descend from the line of King David. Here, Matthew is noting the irony uh, that it's two blind men who are the first to truly recognize Jesus for who he is. And now, how will Jesus respond to their great faith? Verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind blind men came to him. Now you're thinking, wait, what? Jesus just kept on walking? He just went inside while they were yelling at him? Why is that? Now, we're about to see in a moment, it certainly isn't the case that Jesus was unwilling to heal them. Remember, Jesus is someone who is perfectly in step with the Spirit of God. So just as the story of the paralyzed man brought before Jesus... He seems to know that these two need something other than like immediate direct response. He wants to engage them further and uniquely. It could also be that these two knuckleheads are essentially shouting that Jesus is the Messiah, which is a very dangerous thing to go about broadcasting given the political implications. It was believed, after all, that the Messiah would be this violent military leader who would overthrow the oppressors and restore Israel back to power. And they're going, here's the guy, here's the guy. So Jesus is either testing their faith or maybe he's just diffusing a possible sin. He's like, do-do-do-do-do and goes inside. In any event, once he has them inside, he talks to them. Verse 28 goes on. Jesus asks them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. 
And that line can be translated, Amen, Lord. Meaning in the same way when we conclude times of prayer by saying, Amen, we are effectively saying, just as these blind guys, we believe you can do it. Verse 29, Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Now, again, that Jesus would touch them physically is incredible. Uh, eye diseases in the ancient Near East, not unlike skin diseases, were widely, widely regarded as offensive and loathsome. And though we now know Jesus doesn't actually require touch to heal someone, he goes out of his way to talk to them, something that we also know isn't required, and to touch them because he wants them to know intimacy with him. And the healing words of Jesus can be translated like this, you believe it, you have it. I love that. The story goes on in verse 30. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Now, part of me, when it reads the story, finds that lovely. I think, you know, all these dudes, they're now able to see. They're so caught up in this incredible reality of what has just taken place. They assume Jesus is probably just being modest. So they just go tell everyone against his wishes. But don't miss that there is a disobedience taking place here in the story. One scholar I read this week noted that this may well be included in Matthew's gospel to remind us that even an incredible move of God is often not enough to compel obedience, even in the simplest of things. And many of us know this well enough, right? How many of you know someone who experienced something incredible only to wander from it? How many of us have done that very same thing? And here, the reasons are actually defensible. They, they may have convinced themselves that spreading the word was the best thing to do, that they couldn't help but celebrate Jesus and his compassion. Maybe it's just that everyone wanted to know how the heck they could see all of a sudden. But what did Jesus ask them not to do? Tell anyone. And what did they do? tell everyone, the whole region, it says. They convince themselves that they know better than Jesus. They have good reason to not do what Jesus asks them to do specifically. And I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds very familiar drawing from my own life. How many of you feel like you've been nudged at some point in time or, or directed or you flat out heard from God's Spirit, do this or go here or start this tomorrow, or change this right now, or begin this right now, or stop doing this right now. And in that moment, you, you're energized, you're compelled, you're inspired, or you're broken and convicted, but the moment wanes, and with it, your enthusiasm for obedience. We are, it turns out, often not so different from these happily disobedient recipients of Jesus' kindness. But before we end, there's one more story, a small little chunk included in this block of Matthew's gospel. Let's do one last little bit of reading beginning with chapter 9, verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, remember them, said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And that's the end of the story. Interestingly, here, Matthew records nothing of the interaction that takes place in the actual healing of the 
guy that can't talk and the exorcism. In one line, the man is brought to Jesus, and in the next, the healing's already over with. It's almost like Matthew saying, you should know how this goes by now. This is the way it is. Jesus confronts evil and sickness. He beats them both back. That's how it works. And really, the focus in this little anecdote has less to do with the miracle and more to do with the controversy that it generates. Just as this entire block of Scripture, if you can think back to, you know, 20-some-odd minutes ago, also began with a controversy. And the story ends with the accusation from the Pharisees. We get no defense from Jesus, and we get no defense from his disciples or the people that are around him in Matthew's gospel. And here's why. Matthew, the author of this biography, has now presented us, the readers, with ten miracles from Jesus as evidence that he did live exemplifying the same authority with which he taught. Here's just some of them to, if you want to you know, do a recap. Jesus cleanses a leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and the whole town after that. He calms the storm. He casts out demons. He forgives sins and heals a paralyzed man. He heals the bleeding woman. He raises the dead girl. He heals two blind men, and he casts out a deaf, mute spirit. In each story, Matthew highlights incredible instances of faith, the faith of the leper, the centurion, the, the friends of the paralyzed man, and on down the list. And then, he concludes this collection of miracle narratives on an unresolved note, and deliberately so. Now, it's the faith of the reader that's meant to be called into question, meaning it's like Matthew is saying, now that you've read all this, what about your faith? In the story, notice that the Pharisees don't deny that Jesus is doing miraculous things. They're standing right there. They can see the whole thing happening. They just refuse to acknowledge that his ability to do them actually comes from God. In other, in other words, they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. In previous stories, Jesus is defended. He defends himself or he defends himself, you know, with his own words or his actions. People come around him and they talk. Here, Matthew just leaves a huge blank space. He's inviting the reader to defend Jesus and thus acknowledge the truth of who Jesus actually is. We, the readers, are meant to say, if Matthew does his job correctly, wait, no, it's not by demons that Jesus wields this incredible power. It's because Jesus comes from God. He is who he says he is. He's teacher, he's master, he's Lord. But the question just hangs in the air. Will we actually say all this? And there's not really a tremendous amount of updating necessary to apply the questions raised by this text to today. See, the narrative here is not at all dissimilar to a predicament in which every one of us must confront time, many times over, 2,000 years later on the other side of the world even. Today, you and I are privy to the power and authority of Jesus, if we're willing to do so or be uh, privy to it, just as we are privy to derision over that same power and authority. Uh, I personally have seen the Spirit of God do incredible things. I have known and experienced extraordinary things personally or just seen them happen elsewhere, things that happen when people actually practice the way of Jesus, ordinary things and miraculous things that can't be explained otherwise. And of course, I live and breathe in a world that often eyes these miracles with suspicion or points, that, points at them with a scowl and says, false. Um, I'm a fan of uh, stand, the stand-up comedy, personally. Recently, I was talking to a friend about the recent uh, Ricky Gervais stand-up special, which is this wildly crass and predictably offensive spectacle. There's your warning. Don't say I told you to watch it or anything. And given uh, Ricky Gervais's very outspoken atheism, it features its fair share of ridicule for someone who believes the types of things that I believe. So this friend of mine asked me if that sort of thing ever bothers me or if it challenges me. 
And I said, man, I'm, I'm personally not at all threatened by what Mr. Gervais has to say about God. Uh, frankly, you know, I appreciate some of his satire. I, th- I find some of his critiques kind of fair. But there are accusations against Jesus that needle at me in my weakness. The ones that say things like, what if everything is ultimately meaningless? Or what if God isn't as lovely as you've been led to believe he might be? And there I sit, having seen what I've seen, knowing what I know, and an accusation floats in the air. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. He's not who he says he is. And I have to answer with my own life. Historically, the church has not always managed this task well, like trying to put new wine into old wineskins. For instance, when the church has felt threatened by the accusers of Jesus, we've often become reckless and unthinking, frankly. When we feel belittled and dismissed, we fight back with angry, vitriolic rhetoric. When we feel threatened by science, we just try to throw the whole thing out. When we feel threatened by social opposition, we reach for political power, which never goes well in the history of the church. When we feel threatened by violence, we become violent ourselves. And the reason, I think, is that the church becomes convinced that it's our job to rescue the way of Jesus from the world. And it isn't. It's not our job to ensure Christian political power. It's not our job to impose Christian practice on an unchristian world. It's not our job to legislate Christian morality. It's not our job to protect the image of Jesus or to try to act as his PR agents. It just isn't. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's never a time to debate and to engage in thoughtful dialogue. The church has always valued the discipline of apologetics, which is the field of kind of reasoned arguments to support belief. We have disciples of Jesus who are historians, who are scientists, who are philosophers, who are leaders, not just now, on down through the history of the church. And that can all be great. We need that. But Jesus didn't go about gathering defense lawyers for himself. He didn't invite people by saying, come argue about me. He gathered disciples. His invitation was for them to come and follow And many of you, you know, I know well enough personally to say that you're certainly not the type who would go about like arguing with people about Jesus or to go on like an anti-science tirade, uh, unless I'm mistaken. And the question I think for you is, will you defend Jesus with your life? Will you look headlong into the accusations and the doubt and the despair and resolve to follow Jesus anyway, believing he is who he says he is? Doubt is inevitable. It it can actually be really healthy. It's not something that you're trying to avoid. It's something you're trying to navigate well. Sadness, defeat, darkness, all of these things can and will come to every disciple of Jesus. But is Jesus still who he says he is? And when that question presents itself again and again and again in your life, what will you say? Not with a vote, not with a sandwich board or a debate, and, a, and certainly not a debate in like a, a debate in a comment section or something like that, but with your next decision, with your next conversation, with the next hour of your life, and the one after that, and the one after that. Because discipleship to Jesus is a moment-by-moment thing. It is a every thought, every breath, all-encompassing way of life kind of thing. It's not an event on a Sunday, it's not a small group, it's not a prayer in times of crisis or before a big decision. 
Following Jesus is in the grand sweep and seemingly insignificant minutia of each unfolding moment of your life. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if so, what will we do about it tonight and tomorrow morning and in this season of life and in the future? Will we become new wine into new wineskins, leaving behind the old ways of pettiness and individualism and self-sufficiency and hedonism and violence and legalism and political fervor, embracing instead the ways of humility and open-mindedness and community and dependence on God's Spirit, disciplined self-denial and peacemaking and sacrificing for others, especially enemies. You've heard what other people say. You've heard the antagonism and the pushback. So now, oh reader, what about your faith? Is Jesus who he says he is?